You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 32. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. In this episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast, I had the opportunity to catch up with Raj Sharma, who is an immigration lawyer practicing in Calgary, Alberta. This episode is a little bit different because rather than having Raj recorded uh, via a Skype call, I had the opportunity to go up to Calgary and we had this interview in person. I took my little Roland digital recorder and uh, I was actually very pleased with the, the audio quality. So it's not quite as good as we normally would have, but it's still pretty darn good. Um, Raj was giving a presentation on the consequences of criminal inadmissibility in the context of immigration uh, to our Canadian Bar Association's immigration section in Calgary. And I had a chance to catch up with him after that presentation, just to ask him a few more questions and to get some good insight and practical tips for some of us who on occasion run into people who have criminal convictions who are facing removal. And uh, that could be a foreign national who's here on a study permit or a work permit or a temporary resident visa, or it could be a permanent resident uh, with, you know, some pretty serious consequences. So in both cases, sometimes we run into these situations and as counsel, we just don't know what the options are. We can read the act, we can read the regulations, we, we understand the policy manuals, but Raj shared some invaluable practical insight that you just can't get anywhere else. And I'm so grateful for the time that he took to to visit with me and uh, the stories that he shared, the insight. It was a lot of fun. I had a great time. And uh, I've known Raj for a long time and he is a very respected immigration lawyer within the bar. He takes on those cases that a lot of us really don't, uh, you know, don't, don't do. And um, when I run into very difficult issues and uh, clients with, you know, uh, challenging criminal uh, circumstances, um, I almost invariably send them Raj's way. And so he has a very compassionate heart. And I think like most people who delve into anything criminal, uh, criminal related, but he also shared something with me that I think really sets the stage for a lot of what we're going to talk about today. And that's the fact that most people with criminal convictions are not hardened, you know, malicious, um, just willful uh, criminals. They're people that suffer from, you know, the human condition of fragility, you know, that who make, who make errors, who make mistakes with their, with their lives and, and, uh, never ever set out to, to do what they did, but just made a bad decision. And, and in the end, they, uh, they ended up, uh, being on the other side of the law. So it's these individuals in particular that, that you and I are going to face within our practices. And, uh, the insight that Raj shares here will be absolutely invaluable. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's get to this interview with my friend Raj Sharma. All right, I'm here with my good friend and colleague Raj Sharma. Raj, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. 
We're testing this out with our digital recorder here. I usually do these interviews via Skype call, um, but uh, I've got high hopes that the audio is going to be great regardless. So thanks for putting up with me, Raj, and happy to have you with us. So today, Raj has uh, agreed to come in and talk a little bit about criminal inadmissibility and some of the consequences that can flow when people get themselves into trouble here in Canada. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to take a moment to share a little bit of background on Raj and, and uh, where, he, uh, where he's come from professionally and, and where he's at. Uh, Raj Sharma is a lawyer and founding partner of Stuart Sharma Harshani, one of Western Canada's largest dedicated immigration law firms. He received his Master's of Law from Osgoode Hall and is a former refugee protection officer with the Immigration and Refugee Board. Now, I, I'll get to the question of how you got into immigration, and I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and think that that probably influenced it a little bit. That's right. With over 100 reported decisions, Raj has indicated to me, uh, he, re he frequently appears before all divisions, as well as the federal court, the, the court of appeal, and has also appeared before every level of court in Alberta. Raj regularly speaks on immigration matters in the media, and he's been a panelist and speaker uh, at the CBA National Immigration Conference in 2014 and 15. And uh, he also uh, writes a lot on immigration, multiculturalism, and diversity. And recently, he was the recipient of the Legal Aid of Alberta's Access to Justice Award and has been recognized as well as one of Calgary's top 40 under 40. So Raj is an extremely accomplished individual, and I know that he won't plug him himself, so I'll do that, uh, that for him. But whenever I have a difficult case, um, you know, with respect to enforcement or appeal work or anything like that, I, I send it to him and his firm. So once again, thanks for joining, Raj. Thanks, Mark. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm Indian, East Indian, or as I like to call or describe ourselves as, uh, as brown. And so no matter how accomplished I am, obviously, given that I'm not a doctor, I'm probably a disappointment to uh, my parents. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we'll have to get your parents on to, uh, to come back. And I'm almost positive with everything that you've done, at least within our industry and, and how you've distinguished yourself that... Uh, uh, there wouldn't be a parent on this planet that wouldn't be proud of you. But uh, enough of the feel-good stuff. Fill us in. How did you get into immigration? Uh, I never intended to get into immigration law. I, I did my JD, my undergrad, at the University of Alberta. And while I was there, I didn't take any immigration courses. Immigration just wasn't even on my radar. I summered at uh, a large law firm here in Calgary, Burnett, Duckworth & Palmer. I didn't like the large law firm milieu, so to speak, and then I summed with uh, Dennis Edney, and, uh, who's now the lawyer for Omar Khadr, and then I also clerked at the Alberta Court of Appeal, and ended up doing my articles with the Federal Department of Justice. Um, I think I had at that point an understanding that I would be somewhat closer to a barrister or a litigator than I would be in terms of a solicitor. And there was one case that I handled, and my mentor at that time at the Federal Department of Justice was Glennis Bembridge, who is now a federal court justice with a different last name. Um, but there was one case, and it was it involved a family. There were doctors, and their son had autism. And so I was the articling student, so I had to put together the affidavit and supporting the officer's finding of medical inadmissibility. And I found that really, really interesting, but I kept saying to my mentor that why can't we just consent on this, uh, on this file? The family is really deserving, and um, 
and and ultimately I think that the family did get relief um, and so after that I'd met my wife in Winnipeg at a I'm going to jump in yes so you said why can't we just consent to this and what was his response well, it was a strange response. The response was just like, oh, we just have to, you know, we have to carry it through. Stop. Well, it, it was more like it was like, oh, well, the client instructions. I'm like, what client? I'm like, you know, we're the government. And so and so I was explained that different departments are actually clients of the Department of Justice. And I found that very odd because I don't think that's true. I think that a client solicitor relationship is um, doesn't encapsulate departments of government being clients of each other. Yeah. Um, so I found that odd. And so in any event, I'd met my wife at, uh, in Winnipeg at a wedding, and my cousin's wedding. And so I needed a, she was in Calgary, born and raised in Calgary. So I needed a way to get to Calgary somehow. And so I was applying for jobs in Calgary. And I got this sort of called up to do this test or examination at the Immigration Refugee Board, and uh, I was offered uh, this position to become a refugee protection officer. And that's where, in fact, I met my partner, Bjorn Harshani. So we both started off as refugee protection officers, hearings officers in 2002. Cool. So obviously that makes a, a pretty nice background for sliding over to the other side. You, it gives you an opportunity, at least having worked on the other side, to, to get a better understanding of how the government operates, how the department operates, a little bit more insight into the minds of you know what goes through a decision maker on that side. And I have to assume that that helped you as you moved over to the other side with your advocacy on behalf of clients. I think so. And I think that, and again, there's this sort of tradition of uh, this entrepreneurial sort of tradition within my community. And, and of course, my second and third languages also helped. There was a burgeoning South Asian community in Calgary at that time. Really, it was it was timing, and, and so Calgary was just very good to me. I had moved to Calgary at about the right time, and I and I went into private practice at about the right time, right before Calgary kind of took off, so to speak. And so, uh, 2004, I started my uh, practice. Late 2004, I started my practice, and. You know, at that time, just trying to take whatever you can get. And so, again, I wasn't really centered in immigration. And then there was this legal aid file, this three-hour legal aid file for criminal inadmissibility, and it involved a foreign national in Canada accused or there was an allegation of weapons uh, uh, or and, and gun smuggling and weapons trafficking. And so at that point, I thought, well, this is a foregone conclusion. I looked at the IRPA and I said, well, this is just, there's no way out here. Um, but my partner at that time kind of pushed me a little bit. And, and so I, I looked at it, I looked at it again. I, looked, I put in far more hours than the three hours allotted to me. And, and lo and behold, I was able to succeed. And I think that was the first time that I was in the media. That was the first time I was on TV or, or the newspapers when it, at least when it came to my legal practice. And it was after that that my practice in immigration kind of took off because it was after that that I joined Karen and Partners. And, and then again, after I left Karen and Partners, there was another Vietnamese fellow that uh, sort of, there was a fork in, I, I suppose, in the road. And there was another Vietnamese client, uh, Jackie Tran, and, and that file I took on in 2009. So again, that sort of, both of these cases probably had something to do with the direction of my practice. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Because I think for most of us, um, 
you know, business immigration lawyers, I guess that's how I classify myself, when there's a sticky situation, I get uncomfortable pretty quick. And I have a tendency to, to try to take the path of easiest, you know, and least resistance with my clients. And if there's pushback from the government, I tend to try and say, okay, well, do we need to refile? Do we need to rethink our strategy? Sometimes it's faster to just accept the, the stupid decision that you get from an officer and then just try to satisfy whatever they want and refile and get it approved. But there's a number of situations where people get themselves into a corner where they, they really don't have a, a nice, easy solution other than taking the government on. Well, I think, you know, both of those, it depends on what you're facing. Now, in your case, you have to solve a sort of business problem. And so prior to 2009, before Jack and Tran, I was actually doing hundreds of LMIAs or LMOs that they were called at, at that time. So I was representing major corporations. I was getting fat. I was just doing pure solicitor work. And I think, again, timing kind of came to my sort of rescue because once I got into the Tran file, which necessitated three different federal court applications, and, you know, state application, IAD, ID, and... And so, and and right at, at about that same time, the economy in, in, in Calgary sort of collapsed, so to speak. And so if you're a one-trick pony, that is, you're only doing one aspect of immigration, you could be susceptible yeah. um, to that sort of change. And so I was very lucky in the sense of, you know, I did quite a bit of solicitor or business uh, work, but given that sort of strong litigation um, year, we were able to just basically switch our practices over to a litigation aspect. But... You know, in, in business, and this, you know, you're tasked with making sure that the business runs smoothly. Where it's an individual facing loss of status, there, it's a zero-sum game, right? And so in business, there may be not, it's not a zero-sum game, but in someone facing removal or deportation to a country that they haven't been in since they're a kid, it's a zero-sum game, which is you win or you lose. And so at that point, you start bringing out all the, the, the arrows in your quiver, Hmm. And you're doing whatever you can for your client because it is, for them, to some degree, it's life or death right. in the sense of it's a death of a relationship. It's a death of your relationship to Canada. Mm-hmm. And it's a death of your status uh, in this country. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let's shift to the topic at hand. And I think a lot of our listeners, this isn't something that they're very familiar with because... I think genuinely people try to avoid <laughs> committing crimes in Canada and, well, we know, and getting themselves removed. Right, and, and we know for a fact that immigrants or you know, first-generation Canadians have a far lower crime rate than uh, native-born Canadians. So you're absolutely right. I mean, most of our, mo- your listeners and our clients, most of them, the vast majority, enjoy a, a lower criminal rate uh, than even Canadians. Than Canadians yes, would. absolutely. So as you know, those that are listening in here, um, as I introduced uh, when I started the podcast here, the interview with, with Raj Sharma, um, I indicated that we're going to be talking a little bit about criminal inadmissibility. So Raj, can you give us a little bit of an introduction? So when we talk about criminal inadmissibility, how does that play into this world of immigration? Well, immigration is about, and, and notwithstanding whatever we hear these days from you know Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, I mean... There are no such thing as truly open borders, and a country will always dictate who enters and, and who remains. And so there was a case uh, that went to the Supreme Court of Canada involving a woman, actually. Most of the cases that deal with uh, actually do involve men. But Medavarsky, 
uh, involved a woman. And Medovarsky reaffirmed that sort of concept that non-citizens do not have an unqualified right to enter or remain inside of Canada. So when we look at criminality, the threshold for removing non-citizens from Canada is is spelled out in intricate detail in the Immigration Refugee Protection Act. And there is a sort of bifurcation, i.e. it's somewhat harder to remove permanent residents from Canada and quite a bit easier to remove foreign nationals from Canada. When we talk about foreign nationals, we're talking about students and those here on work permits or those that are visitors in Canada. When we talk about permanent residents, obviously those are individuals that applied for permanent residency. They're not citizens yet. Um, and so we have a sort of uh, paradigm, a, a very detailed framework uh, that deals with non-citizens that get in trouble with the law. Hmm. So when we talk about getting in trouble with the law, does the Immigration Act or the government, do they view certain crimes more seriously than others? How is that distinction set up? No, and, and maybe they should. That's That's probably a good... That would have been a proper starting point. Maybe you should have been involved in the sort of legislation of these laws. But unfortunately, the distinction of the severity of a crime is based on the maximum term of imprisonment or the actual incarceral or, or, uh, or term that's imposed. And so, and when we talk about prison or incarceral term, we're including conditional sentences or community uh, or sentences to be served in the community. So the distinction is not between the type of offense. Someone that's convicted of a white-collar offense, such as fraud, could face removal just as easily or perhaps more easily than someone accused or charged with simple assault. Hmm. So even if an offense, let's say it's a hybrid offense, so the it could proceed summarily or by indictment, the person that is sentenced to 10 years' imprisonment uh, for that offense versus someone that's sentenced to six months under the eyes of the lovely immigration authorities, it's irrelevant. That's right. And and it also doesn't take into account your length of time in Canada. So you could be a permanent resident, you could be here since year two or three, and you could be 30 years and you could have an issue. And of course, this is the fragility of the human condition. We all make mistakes. And so it doesn't take into account the length of time that you're in Canada either, nor does it take into account the nature of the offense, whether it's violent or whether it's nonviolent. Um, it's much more, it's a blunt instrument, unfortunately, Section 36 and uh, particularly. Excellent. So if you have an individual that's committed a crime in Canada, it's pretty clear. We know what the offense is. We know what the conviction was. There's not a lot of debate about it. But what happens if someone wants to enter Canada or comes to Canada and has a conviction that occurred overseas or in another country. How does Canada treat those? Those things get complicated really quickly um, because different countries have different legal systems and different countries have different standards in terms of the, you know, you, you could have a situation, you're from China. Now, China has a 99.9% .9 conviction rate. Wow. And <laughs> I won't. Maybe I won't ask too many questions as to how that justice system plays out for those people accused. But yeah. uh, but uh, I mean, and so you know, when we start uh, making equivalent or making offenses or acts that individuals have done outside Canada, and we have to somehow try and make them equivalent to offenses in in Canada, those things get tricky really, really quickly. Um, and. And that's one subset of what we do. But, I, you know, and I, I just keep getting reminded, even this morning, 
uh, had a client applied under the Alberta Immigrant Nominee Program, skilled individual, excellent English, everything's fantastic, no criminal record whatsoever, applied under the ANP, got the nomination, got the applied for the PR forms to Sydney. We got the passport request um, two days ago, three days ago, problem. Last week, after a birthday party or someone's party, one in the morning, charged with impaired driving. And so those are the sort of pick a yoon and sort of, you know, understandable criminality. Because, you know, I think a lot of, you know, some politicians paint criminals as this sort of broad brush. But criminals are no different than, you know, myself or, or you. It's just there's one mistake that or one one incorrect decision. And I think impaired driving is is like that. This is impaired driving, could result in no jail time whatsoever, probably will result in a fine if he ever gets convicted, and a driving suspension. Uh, won't spend a day in jail, um, but that's a hybrid offense, and yeah. that makes him inadmissible. And so that's where I feel a lot of sympathy, um, because you're seeing literally in front of you the end of a dream. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing a person that for all other purposes would be an ideal addition to Canada's multicultural fabric. So that's what, you know, it's not, uh, it, you know, it's not really the media. It's not my cases that hit the news or the front pages that really uh, give a proper idea of my practice. It, it really is those guys that are within an inch of permanent residency, and, and we wouldn't consider them to be criminals, but, of course, they've made a grievous uh, and horrendous error by, by drinking and getting behind the wheel of a car. So let's carry that through. I think that would be interesting. So an individual who is in that type of a situation, this happens to them, what can they expect? Number one, if they come to me, my first response to them, and there, there may be some sort of false hope or some sort of strange fever dream that they're existing in, or they may get some sort of strange advice from someone or a friend or a cousin, um, and there may be a suggestion as to just somehow let it ride out, and CSE may not figure this out. My first advice to them is that if they want my assistance, uh, that we will be disclosing the charge and the encounter with the police um, immediately. Um, So that's the first thing that should happen. And once they agree to these sort of terms, then we can start figuring out a solution. Now, the solution, of course, and I kind of outlined that earlier today in in my speech here, which is now start looking into conviction options or post-conviction options. And so, you know, these sort of conviction options, number one, beat out the charge in trial. Because the system is binary, because it's a zero-sum game, we can't now, you know, I think criminal lawyers and immigration lawyers that dabble in criminal law, there's no options now. You actually have to go and try to beat this out. you got to find, even if your client is factually guilty, you got to find a way to make him legally not guilty because if he's not guilty, that doesn't lead to any criminal consequences. If it's an offense, a domestic violence type of situation, and a peace bond is in the offing, take a peace bond. A peace bond doesn't have any criminal consequences either. Um, there may be possibilities for some offenses for absolute or conditional discharges. Take it. Take it that bird in the hand, there, you know, we can safeguard that immigration at that point. Um, in terms of a DUI, we're really looking into these uh, curative discharges now. And that's one option as well. Maybe you can explain what that is. What is a curative discharge? Curative discharge 
involves a process by which there is a guilt or there's factual guilt. And there's, again, you know, these sort of terms that I've used today, which is, you know, deus ex machina or this force mayher or this sort of circumstance or this overwhelming circumstance. And a curative discharge we've used where there's indication of alcoholism and this sort of uh, medical condition. And if we can establish that, then the judge may see fit to grant a curative discharge. Um, and if that happens, then there is no criminal record that could waylay an immigration application or application for permanent residence. That, that's not to say, by the way, that that won't lead to other issues, i.e., you may still need a waiver to get into the U.S. Um, but the curative discharge is something that we explore for impaired driving and conditional and absolute wherever possible. Now, bear in mind, there's a whole host of uh, offenses that have that result in mandatory minimum sentences. And so we can't do a, any number of these things for those types of offenses. But those are some of the arrows in, in our quiver in terms of post-conviction. Hmm. Um, wherever possible, if you are facing a charge, either you're a permanent resident or a foreign national, try to get uh, immigration law involved along with your criminal lawyer. There may be options to get positive sentencing remarks or positive remarks uh, that are uh, spoken into the record. Uh, those transcripts can come in handy. If you are convicted, if you are sentenced, you know, it's important that the client uh, demonstrate remorse and rehabilitation, engage in programming, and try to turn that life around. And if we can demonstrate that, there are some options, which is that that initiating document to establish criminal inadmissibility, the Section 44 report, there is a scope for the officer not to write that report. And when, again, when I started down this sort of journey, I, I didn't realize the scope of discretion that's in the act. There is significant discretion. An officer may choose not to write a report against a permanent resident or foreign national. And that may be the first, and maybe the last real line of defense uh, for a lot of these individuals. And we've seen that happen. We've seen permanent residents. I've represented permanent residents, young guys, you know, uh, a technical armed robbery, four years plus sentence. A technical armed robbery. A technical armed robbery. <laughs> yeah, he got, he got fired. I love these, these, <laughs> this, this terminology. <laughs> technical versus a real. Is it? Is there, I'll, I'll there any dis, I'll, I'll, is there any distinction there? All right, let me let me tell you, and you tell me whether <laughs> okay. whether that terminology or that splitting of hairs is uh, is appropriate. Um, a guy got fired from a job at a liquor store. Um, was angry, young guy, and decides to rob the liquor store as some sort of you know payback. payback. Uh, buys a gun that is not operational, just this old rusted out gun. Um, there's no bullets in it. It's in, it's inoperable. Goes into the store. Um, you know, I think they, people see the gun, so they kind of flee. So he goes to the cashier and he tries to open the the cash box, is unable to do so, and runs out without stealing anything. To his you know misfortune added to his idiocy, there's an off-duty police officer who immediately arrests him outside the liquor store. So this guy goes through this process, and and his uh, criminal lawyer, after wasting tens of thousands of dollars of his money, pleads him guilty to, a, uh, to an offense that includes a mandatory minimum sentence. 
And so, you know, at that point, and I met the judge actually afterwards, and the judge said, hey, I wonder why that lawyer did that, because if the lawyer challenged that on a charter ground of cruel and unusual punishment, that that mandatory minimum sentence in this case was uh, offends the charter, I would have granted it to him. So this lawyer tells this guy and his family, You're, that's it, game over, you will be deported. But of course, that's not actually the end of it. So A, I do stand by my characterization <laughs> as, of that as a technical armed robbery because this guy suffered, you know, he's more of an idiot than he was a criminal. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and this family went through a lot. This family, um, his sister, in fact, who he lived with, was uh, married, uh, husband had some mental issues, and she was attacked, actually, and the police attended, and, in fact, um, brother-in-law was actually brought down by the, the Calgary mm. Police Service. So the family went through a lot. We put all this together, put the sentencing transcripts in. The, the judge, they got a really sort of compassionate judge who said a lot of things into that record. He was out on bail for four years and um, upgraded himself, and, and it really was an ill-advised decision. Yeah. And ultimately, we had an understanding uh, officer. She ended up uh, interviewing him over the telephone, I think, at the, at the remand or an in, institution and decided not to uh, write the report. Hmm. And I guess that's the, the beauty of this, is, is the discretion that's laced into, you know, into the immigration process. And, and they won't lightly do it, yeah. but if you've got the goods, yeah. it, and it can be done. We had another case, we had a, uh, another individual from, originally from Hong Kong, came over as a kid, got into some gambling issues, and then got into selling drugs to pay off some of those debts, mm-hmm. and yeah. served his time, was a model prisoner, and you know his entire family was here. We set out everything. In this case, we asked the report not to be written. It was written. We challenged the report at the federal court. We received uh, approval or leave on one. It went back, and ultimately, a minister's delegate decided to issue a warning letter, mm-hmm. and that's drug trafficking, <clears throat> and that was, again, significant. And so mm-hmm. these things can be done for the right individual. Yeah. And so if you will have people that have turned their lives around and you can see, you can tell yeah. there's no faking this because it's a years long journey. Mm-hmm. And if you've got it, you've got it. And thankfully, our officers, uh, what I've seen is that we have fair individuals, open minded individuals, you know, and that's not to say that I haven't lost uh, on something that I think I should have won. I have. But even that decision, at least it was done at least that individual had an open mind. So I think our officers, by and large, are open-minded individuals. And, and again, this may be the last line of defense for a lot of these uh, individuals because there may not be an appeal to the IED anymore because the sort of atrociously entitled Faster Removal of Foreign Criminals Act uh, has amended the IRPA. And so permanent residents that have been sentenced to more than six months, including conditional sentences, don't have an appeal to the IAD anymore. So you know, they've got to, whatever they've got, they've got to uh, address that Section 44 report, that procedural fairness process, maybe federal court, maybe a TRP, maybe an agency, a humanitarian and compassion application. Uh, but options mm-hmm. without that IED backup, options are limited. And that's, that's really interesting because, like I said, for, from my perspective, someone who does not do a lot of that type of work, very little, in fact, um, I see walls absolute walls sometimes for people that I can't see past 
whereas individuals such as yourself who have a little bit of a broader perspective and have actually gone and and uh, and looked behind the wall have realized that there's sometimes there's ways through and so the message that I got especially and and just to clarify for the listeners um, I'm uh, Raj and I are just meeting at, at the Canadian Bar Association office here in Calgary after Raj gave a, a presentation on this similar topic and one of the messages that came through loud and clear is that you know maybe people give up too easy and they need to especially counsel us and I, I you know I, I put us under the bus in many circumstances because sometimes we're we're just too willing to roll over and we need to take a serious look at what the possibilities are and not be afraid to question and challenge an allegation that's being made against our clients and even in circumstances where um, based on a clear reading of the law there's a certain outcome that is that is you know uh, is supposed to flow it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't discretion to to go around that and that there isn't some compassion laced into the system yeah and I, you know I, and I learned this relatively recently I went to visit my 85 90 year old grandmother in Edmonton and you know I didn't learn until much later so my grandfather died so my grandmother came over with my youngest uncle to Canada none of the kids actually knew that her uncle was actually her sister's son. Her sister died, so she had taken my uncle in. And I guess his dad wasn't interested in, in, in caring for him. So I learned this later that, oh, okay, you know, uncle is not actually her uncle, he's actually my mom's cousin. And we're like, oh, okay. And I only learned a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago in Edmonton, <laughs> that, uh, and I knew that there was some immigration issues that he was going through early on when he came. And so my grandmother explained it to me because there was no adoption papers. And because my grandmother, I think, is incapable of lying, she was very straight out that we have no adoption papers, but she has nowhere else to be other than with me. And so they battled for like three or four years to try and get my uncle to be here. And they're like, ultimately, they're like, you know, well, he can't be here. There's no adoption papers. We have no consent from his guardian or his biological father or whatever the case may be. And, you know, we're from the small mining town in Elkford, and I guess my other uncles were just going out to Vancouver to hire an immigration lawyer. Ultimately, uh, my, my uncle got what was then called a minister's permit, and which is now we call a TRP, a temporary resident permit. And, you know, I, and when I learned that, I was like, well, I guess that's what I do. There are, in fact, and, and so I think people minimize or perhaps don't understand the scope of discretion that's available. And there are roadblocks, there's hurdles, there's very few problems without an absolute solution. It is true if you are, a, you know, and that being said, if you are an unmitigated, incorrigible criminal, no officer is going to give you the benefit of whatever doubt there may be. Um, but there are these sort of avenues that can be pursued, and there is a sort of system, and so you got to work through that system, work with the criminal lawyers, put your client in the best possible light, take advantage of any little nook, cranny, any little you know shaft of light, and you might be able to widen that crack a little bit for your client to slip through. Um, but yes, very few things are foregone conclusions, and it's our job as counsel to put the best possible foot forward for the client. And again, in my 12 years of practicing immigration law, there's very few actual incorrigible and, and those are, and you know, and I said this before, and I said this to Jason Kenny as well, is that hard cases make bad law, and outliers shouldn't make 
the w world a harder place for the vast majority of people that simply want to come to Canada and give their families a better life for you know and so these outliers don't reflect the vast majority of cases that we deal with the vast majority of cases we deal with are human fragility human error understandable mistakes hmm. interesting so you mentioned uh, this concept of a TRP, a temporary resident permit, which is now the, the new version of a minister's permit. That's right. So in some circumstances, individuals will have appeal rights when there is criminality involved and they're, they're facing some harsh consequences. They have appeal rights, and other times they don't. And you had talked a little bit about the discretion that an officer has to write that report to refer it or not. So can you maybe clarify that just a little bit for, for counsel who maybe have individuals that are, that are at the stage where the consequences could be pretty nasty? Maybe there is no appeal, right? And, and you indicated that sometimes an officer does have some discretion whether or not to write it. That's right. For, so that's Section 44 report. So let's say there's a conviction in Canada. And so establishing that would be pretty straightforward, pretty easy. What an officer, what a counsel can do is respond to a procedural fairness letter, say, you know, please don't write the Section 44 report, and here's why. And these are going to be tip, the typical ribic choose, you know, the typical Section 25 type of application or submission. So time in Canada, establishment in Canada, those ties here, the family ties here, hardship or adverse conditions or challenges upon return, children that are affected by the decision, the circumstances leading to the offense, uh, any indicia of remorse, rehabilitation, insight. So all those should be squ uh, placed squarely before the officer, and you say to the officer, don't write this report, please. The guy's been here for a long time. This is a singular mistake. You know, the criminal record is limited or none other than this la you know, lapse in judgment. If the officer writes the report, it then has to be referred under Section 44 sub 2 to, by a minister's delegate. If it's referred for a permanent resident, that means it goes to the Immigration Division. If it's criminality or serious criminality in Canada, that Section 44 sub 2, that becomes a removal order for a foreign national. Um, so again, there's less sort of options for foreign nationals here. If it's referred to the Immigration Division, not much you can do if it's a conviction in Canada. The ID is not going to look beyond the certificate of conviction. Um, if it's a conviction outside of Canada or an allegation that some offenses occurred outside of Canada that would be equivalent to serious offenses inside of Canada, then the Immigration Division proceeding becomes a substantive proceeding, and that's when it takes on some degree of significance. And so you are then going to start talking about foreign legal laws, standard of proof, burden of proof, and at that point you probably should be retaining a foreign legal expert. So it gets gets kind of complicated really quickly at that point. After a removal order is issued, post-removal order options are limited. A TRP can overcome or allow you to remain in Canada notwithstanding a removal order. An agency can do the same. And one option might be to get a TRP pending uh, record suspension for a conviction inside Canada, for example, if, if there's eligibility. So if an officer refuses, well, chooses to write the report when you've made your submissions, can you challenge that part before it gets to the 
Yes, you can challenge both the writing of a report to the federal court and the referral of the report to the federal court. You probably won't do that if the person concerned is a permanent resident and has an appeal right to the IAD. There's no no sense in that. But if you don't have that appeal, you know, you're you're left with these sort of limited options and so you're going to buy some more time. And so by going to the federal court, either you buy some more time, it goes back, a different officer might come to a different conclusion, um, or you simply might need time for record suspension. Hmm. So just buying the time. Interesting. Might be one, one yeah. because you need strategic depth, right? And so strategic depth is usually time. More time in Canada gives you more options. Define strategic depth for those who are not following. So well, what mean, are you talking about when you, when you use that? terminology. Well, well, strategic depth, I think I was thinking more in terms of war. And so if you've got if you've got a con- country like Russia and you want to invade Russia, and Napoleon and Hitler both tried that. And so one of the problems is that Russia has a lot of depth. And so, you know, you can invade and invade and keep invading and Russia or the defending, uh, you know, Russia the Russians will have time to mount a sort of response. Um you can contrast that with, for example, Pakistan, which is, is sort of kind of thin-waisted, geographically speaking, right? There's not a lot of strategic depth there. Um, in, in term, if we were to apply that terminology to immigration or, or in Canada, then I would say strategic te- depth is, would be time. A lot of time, we don't have time. And so give me some time, give me enough time, and I can do quite a bit. And, you know, you need time to marshal resources, to file federal court applications, to file TRP applications, to file HNC applications, to maybe get a rehabilitation application in. So time is our strategic depth, and most of the time we don't have it. (laughs) uh, Yes, that is abundantly clear within our practice. Okay, so I I really appreciate that overview and the insight. It was awesome. Um, Let's talk about some practice tips maybe. So if counsel finds themselves in these types of, of, of positions, um, dealing with an issue of potential criminal inadmissibility, what are some of the things that go through your mind right away that you'd, you'd give in terms of advice, um, you know, things that people want to make sure that they do every single time, or little tips or strategies? You've already indicated here that you want to try to buy as much time as you can. That's obviously really important. But are there any specific things or pieces of advice that we haven't maybe talked about yet that you'd, you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, I think definitely uh, take a look at the IRCC or CIC um, policy manuals, uh, Enforcement Manual 5, Enforcement Manual 6. Take a look at uh, the Loose Leaf publication by Mario Bellissimo and uh, Genova, uh, Immigration and Admissibility, and there's, they've got a handbook as well. You know, you need to get an understanding of the facts and understand the sort of law in a sort of relatively quick fashion. But and once you're once you understand the context that you're in, and so if the context is a permanent resident and there's an offense and you're you're looking at the loss of appeal rights and you've got a procedural fairness letter and the sentence has been served, what I would do immediately is probably do eight tip requests access to information requests, and I would try to get and reconstruct the client's immigration history as much as possible. So that's probably the first thing that I would do is do an ATIP request. I would do FOIP requests for the uh, um, correctional service uh, sort of documents, uh, the institution documents, uh, and see 
what's been going on over there and, and try to get access to those parole documents, take a look at their sort of, you know, recidivism sort of rankings. I would probably get the sentencing transcripts right away. Um, I would get any pre-sentence reports that were filed or that were before the sentencing uh, judge right away. I would probably, after I looked at that, I would see if I could update that pre-sentence report by a qualified forensic expert and reassess um, recidivism. And then I would probably put together these sort of substantive submissions, again, relying on maybe the IRB, IAD, Removal Order Appeals uh, publication, and, you know, having regard to the sort of agency factors and Ribic and Chu factors, and I would put in, put all that together and get it into that officer probably as soon as possible. So I would just, that's probably what I would do, and that's probably what anyone should probably do with a PR facing removal um, where there's been a length of sentence greater than six months. And if it was less than six months, then obviously I'd, maybe I'd just keep my powder dry to some degree. I'd still put in something, but I'd probably just keep my powder dry for the IED. Because it's, it's pretty much they're going to send it that way and choose not to make a decision at that stage. I think an officer, and you know, I, I would think as an officer, I, this is not in the manuals at all, but... This is uh, what we want, Raj, <laughs> yes. As an officer, and, you know, and I used to be an officer, but as an officer, if I saw that a PR had a right of appeal, then really I would probably give uh, short shrift to, to any sort of uh, request for exercising my discretion at the 44 stage. I'd be like, look, let me just do my job. Let me write this 44 report and refer it and let him make, let him make whatever submissions he needs to the IED. I think, I think it's a, I think that, I think it's a, uh, I think the relationship to discretion and the loss of appeal rights is inverse. So if there's an appeal right, then I, I would narrow my own discretion. And then if there's no appeal rights, then I would probably take and expand my scope of discretion uh, within, of course, the ambit of the law. Yeah. So. Cool. That's awesome. And, you know, it makes perfect sense. Um, officers, despite how some people feel, are human beings. And uh, when they feel like someone is trying to screw the system over, they're probably not going to give you a lot of help. But if they feel people are genuine and, and you know, they've made a mistake and, and there's a, loop, a whole yeah, host of... And, and the system, yeah. and, the, and, you know, maybe the system has been narrowed uh, uh, against, for example, any further request for relief. I think that they'll substantively consider. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that's awesome. I really appreciate Anytime, you know, everything that you've shared here. This is fantastic. Now, as always, when I have guests on... Uh, people are going to listen to this and they're going to say, hey, I've got a friend or I know someone who's in this exact situation and they, their, their counsel that they have right now is telling them that they might as well start singing happy trails and packing their bags. And, and they, they, they're saying to themselves, there must be something else that I can do. They're going to listen to this and they're going to say, Raj Sharma, hmm, how do I get a hold of this guy? So how do people track you down? What's the best way of getting getting in contact with you and and uh, engaging your services? Uh, for sure, Mark. Um, anyone can email us at info uh, at sshlaw.ca. That's I-N-F-O at sshlaw.ca. Uh, number is uh, 403-705-3398. Um, 
I think we have a toll-free number, but uh, I'm not sure. Well, you can go is, to the website, but, uh, right, too. Yeah, you can uh, definitely reach us, and we'd be happy to help. It's, uh, it's something that we've kind of developed uh, for the last uh, seven, eight years or so. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate your time. Take thanks care. Lot, Mark. Well, that was an awesome interview with Raj. Um, I can't say how much I, you know, how much I appreciate the time that he took, the insight, uh, the the manner in which he explained this pretty complicated area of the law in a fashion that pretty much anyone could understand. Um, it's very clear, as he indicated, that there are options available, especially when an officer is getting ready to write that Section 44 report to to uh, refer it to potential removal, uh, an individual. Um, you know, you just can't get this insight anywhere else. The fact that we can actually challenge those decisions, we can, you know, we can provide submissions and ask them not to write the report at all in some circumstances. And in fact, I have a situation right now where I have a, a client who made some poor decisions and, and ended up, um, just at the very tail end of this spousal sponsorship. So he has a Canadian spouse and Canadian children. And at the very end of his spousal sponsorship, um, he managed to get himself a conviction. And it was in these circumstances, although not a violent crime or anything like that, still considered to be serious criminality. And so, uh, you know, the insight that Raj has shared has has told me that, look, now I have an opportunity to disclose what has happened immediately to immigration and ask them essentially to not write the report and uh, potentially to issue him a temporary resident permit uh, to, you know, to, to bridge this gap until he's once again eligible for either a humanitarian and compassion application or even refiling of the spousal. But uh, that insight that Raj shared was just excellent, and it has helped me directly. And I know um, a lot of what he's told us and what he's shared with us today will in, will be invaluable for many of you, and even you that are foreign nationals yourselves right now that are looking for help or wondering what to do. So one thing I would advise is that you know if you are a foreign national that's in this type of a situation and you've got a criminal conviction, whether it's a DUI or you know something more serious that absolutely you seek uh, counsel from an immigration lawyer. Um, that for sure would be worth more than, than, than you could imagine. Um, obviously, immigration, their, their responsibility and the enforcement officers is to, um, you know, is to follow the law and, uh, and perform their duties in accordance with that. But for, for individuals who are faced with the consequences and some pretty serious consequences as a result of, of, a, of a criminal charge or the like, really need to, to seek proper legal advice. So that's the one plug I'll give for immigration lawyers. Uh, this is an area where we can stand out and we can assist people. But um, this has just been wonderful. Uh, I can tell you that I absolutely love doing this podcast over the summer and into the fall here a little bit. It has been a little bit more sparse than I would normally want, but I have an amazing slate of guest speakers that are going to be coming up here, and I'm going to be doing another interview here in just a a few minutes. Um, And uh, I'm looking forward to sharing a wide breadth of topics on on Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Um, For those of you who are just tuning in to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, you can find us on iTunes. Uh, You can also go to the CanadianImmigrationPodcast.com website or our Facebook page, and uh, make sure that you um, that you register for our mailing list to get notifications when new podcasts are released. And I also have a little widget on the sidebar of my website, the CanadianImmigrationPodcast.com website, where you can leave a question. <clears throat> and um, I also wanted to let everyone know that is listening to the podcast that 
I'm actually contemplating starting another one. And this one will be focused exclusively to express entry. So I have an express entry um, law Facebook page. That's a private Facebook page that people can subscribe to. Um, But I'm going to start a new podcast as well as this Canadian immigration podcast on express entry. So if any of you have any specific questions or anything that you would like to uh, have addressed on this podcast or the express entry podcast, please leave them in the form of a, a voice message. If you want to do that, I can put your question live right on, on the podcast audio stream uh, when I'm recording it, or you can send me an email. So that just about does it for today. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you, you learned a ton and that it was Uh, that it was a a worthwhile use of your time. Thank you so much for listening. Please go about and and share this podcast with all of your friends and anyone else that you feel might be interested in, um, in listening to it. I also wanted to express appreciation to the Canadian lawyer magazine who featured this podcast in one of their, uh, their episodes a few weeks back. And, uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to, you know, it's, it's actually very, very humbling to, to receive that recognition. And, and, uh, in a way it it validates what I'm trying to do here. So, um, please share the podcast. And if you have any ideas or, or suggestions for future topics, or you yourself, um, feel like you would come on, like to come on as, as a guest, please reach out to me. Uh, I would love to have you. All right. I wish everyone all the best as you continue to navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. See you later. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. Yeah.